I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm in conversation today with my longtime friend, and colleague Bob Thurman, known in the academic world as Professor Robert A. F. Thurman. Bob is a talented messenger of the Buddhist teachings and the first Western Tibetan Buddhist monk ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He is the author of many books on Tibet, Buddhism, art, politics, and culture, and was named by the New York Times the leading American expert on Tibetan Buddhism. Bob is a professor emeritus of Indo- Tibetan Buddhist Studies at Columbia University, and the co-founder and president of Tibet House U.S. slash Menla, in service of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the people of Tibet. A close friend of the Dalai Lama's for over 50 years, he is a leading worldwide lecturer on Tibetan Buddhism and a passionate activist for the plight of the Tibetan people. In August of 2021, he released his most recent book, Wisdom is Bliss from Penguin Random House. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you, Sharon. It's really nice to be with you. It's so nice to be with you. I was trying to remember, uh, I don't remember when we met, but I know that you were teaching at Amherst, which is pretty close to Barry Mass, where the Insight Meditation Society is. And I remember um, so many things from your time there when you had His Holiness come to Amherst uh, when you would come here sometimes with different llamas and and translate for them, and um, it's just been uh, such an enriching and an amazing friendship. So it, it I was thinking and wondering if during 1971, if you had ever reached Bodh Gaya, and if I ever saw you then when you're in your early meditation time, I was around there and Almora and Dharamsala and Bodh Gaya. 
Oh, well, I was definitely in Bodh Gaya. I began my meditation practice January 7th, 1971 in Bodh Gaya. Oh, so I bet I saw you. I have a vague idea of just seeing you. I don't think we've sort of formally met. You were, I think, focused on your meditation scene. No doubt. You, you and Joseph <laughs> and Jack Engler and folks. I think I bumped into you guys in Bodh Gaya maybe a few times in 71. Right. Well, Ramdas was there, so that would be unforgettable, you know, if it was just that time. Right. Right, right. I mean, I remember meeting him and all of them in Almora. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember seeing him in Bodh Gaya, but I remember seeing some sort of Buddhist types at the time, <laughs> I, you know, there doing the old meditating away and we're, we're hurrying about their tummies. And I doubt, <laughs> as we should have been. Right. Not worried enough, probably. Right, so right. How did you end up going to India? Like, what was your path to. Well, I was the I was the beneficiary of a terrible accident mm. of uh, losing my left eye in an accident uh, when I was a prematurely young married person and um, with a young daughter in 1961, and um, somehow the loss of that eye was a, of course, a horrible event, but. It was. It gave me the opportunity of having a midlife crisis at twenty mm. instead of at forty <laughs> or forty-five or something, and so I decided I couldn't live a two-track life. Uh, it sort of was like a death experience. You know, I was unconscious for a day mm -hmm. or two, mm. where I never, I never turned on or anything at that time except alcohol. But uh, I, at that point, uh, but um, I, um, you know. It was like a psychedelic experience, losing the eye, and I had them visions and things. And when I, anyway, when I woke up, I immediately said, bring me Hermann Hesse, Nietzsche, Kanza, mm. translation of the uh, Prajnaparamita Sutra that I looked at. And uh, I'm going to India. We're all going to India. So I tried to take my wife and my quite young child with me, baby, uh, and I, you know, we had we had a little money, and we could have had an ayah, and we could have had a jeep, and all that. And I said, we're going to find a guru in India. I've got to do it, you know. Herman has, you know, Siddhartha, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, my ex, unfortunately, wouldn't do it. Just scared to do it, and uh, we broke up actually, and I left. And uh, my good dad protected me. My all the rest of the both my in-law family and my mother wanted to have me treated by some sort of a shrink or something. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, luckily my dad had always wanted, he, he translated the biography of Francis of Assisi, St. Francis, and he always wanted to go on a quest himself. Wow. So he, um, he defended me and I went off on a steamer wow. to India. So that, and then I spent uh, about, it took me about a year of being a fakir in the Muslim countries and visiting Christian monasteries and Sufis and things. With Gurdjieff was another influence at the time. I had a book of Gurdjieff's uh, and looking for Sufi saints and things like that. But anyway, I met the Tibetans then in India and got a job teaching them and was embarking because when I met the Tibetans, that was it. I, I had found what I was, I knew I wanted to study. But I didn't get started much with them in India, though, because my dad died back in the in uh, New York, mm. and I had to go back. And then during that time, I met my actual real root guru, mm -hmm. who was a Mongolian refugee living in New Jersey. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then uh, he took me back to India in 64. But then I spent a couple of years in New Jersey, a very strange, exotic place for a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, really? Well, the, the rumor is that you learned how to speak Tibetan in like six weeks or something like that. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, about 10, in a, in a, a, a little, couple of months, I was fluent. And I was badgering and bothering the Tibetans. He had some Tibetans there who I had a job teaching them English instead of going back to India. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I started badgering them, debating, and I was so flipped out to discover uh, the Dharma and the, the Nirvana, and I was desperate. I had a, I had like a Theravada view of it, even though I was reading Nagarjuna, but emotionally I had a view that it would be a big escape for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the Nirvana was somewhere else that I wanted to go to. And um, and uh, my my teacher kept frustrating me. I tell this story a little bit in the Wisdom is Bliss book. Uh, he kept frustrating me by preventing me from getting out of body, you know, mm-hmm. and going up into form. What later I would learn was some kind of dhyana realm of things. Somehow I immediately wanted to, and I seemed to have an immediate aptitude. And he blocked me from doing that. And I was like, what? You know, I was. We had a lot of stress around it. And only much later I realized that was lucky because it would have slowed me down in some other ways. But it would have made me more relaxed, I think. Too relaxed, <laughs> too relaxed too soon, something like that. Yeah, I remember stories you would tell about how you would be meditating and he'd knock on your door and say, you want some yogurt? That's right. Well, he would, what are you doing? You know, he would usually say, what are you doing? And so on. And then even once I tried to sneak out into the woods and was meditating at the root of a tree, like the old ancient thing, and he would show up there pretending he was walking the dog at three in the morning. And then he said that, I, you know, people would think we were crazy having crazy boys out meditating under the trees in the neighborhood. <laughs> and he, he prevented me. And it was basically I was sort of going into states like out-of-body states. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I would have become attached to them in those, like in those days, like a kind of feeling so peaceful there and then not wanting to kind of, learn more and do things and deal with the world. And also I wanted to be a monk. And that also was a stress. He was refusing to make me a monk. And he was saying, not, he said, I know you want to be, and I know you really seriously want to be, and you want to do it for life. But I'm here to tell you, you won't. I can predict that you will not be able to, and therefore don't do it, because in Tibet system, that's really embarrassing to mm-hmm. quit, you know. And uh, and so anyway, that that was that was very fun. Yeah. Well, one of the um, interesting things about your life is that you you did become a monk. You've lived both the monastic and householder lives, and so that's right. um, but I, I really loved it too. I, I liked it, although again, I think I was annoying <laughs> to my fellow Tibetan friends by being a fanatic. Like Tibetans do eat in the evening. You know, mm-hmm. they excuse themselves uh, from the noon cutoff of eating food until the next morning of the bhikshu and uh, fully ordained bhikshu. And uh, I, I was really rigorous. I only ate up until noon. If I missed getting them some like four boiled eggs or something before noon, I would not eat till the next morning. Mm-hmm. And then they were eating away and I was like <laughs> scolding them. And they, you guys, uh, no wonder you lost you your You are country. annoying actually. <laughs> I was very annoying. And because I was a purist, you know, and, uh, very, very fanatical about it. And I was really annoying. And um, and then I kind of relaxed about it. But anyway, I was definitely intending to keep that way. 
until uh, I sort of knew, learned more about the world, I could say. And, you know, there was no monastery in 1964 or 5 in the U.S. Uh, for Tibetan monks. <laughs> mm-hmm. There was a little one I had first studied at, but in a way that was a kind of ethnic thing, you know, and you're supposed to be the local priest for the Mongolian refugee community. And um, so I did, I served in that way and um, couldn't stay in India, visa issues and so on. Indians thought I was a CIA person or something, I think they thought. Mm. They did, although they got to know me, the local guy. At that time, the guy in Dharamsala was a foreign ministry guy, and they really kept the Tibetan government in exile, took it seriously as if it was really a government in exile. You know, and they weren't frightened of the Chinese in the same way, but they wanted to be buddies with them, so they did suppress him also in a funny way. But I didn't pay any attention to those things. I was so bad. I even told His Holiness he should quit. He should just give away Tibet. Just say, forget about it. I'm a Buddhist monk. You know, I'm not going to do it. And he said, oh, I'd love to do that, he said. But, you know, some elderly Tibetans depend on me, and they might commit suicide or something if I did that, he said. Mm. I do have a duty, even though I'm a monk. You know, I'd rather just be a pure monk, but, you know, the world is the world, and it's my duty to try to protect my people. So I was very intolerant about that, but he tolerated me. Mm. <laughs> we had a lot of fun, actually. Because <laughs> I think he wasn't, you know, everyone was always groveling with him ever since also. So he didn't have somebody who was sort of so into it that it, it was like, you know, we were kind of co-conspirators or something, you know, and he always asked me a lot of stuff about Western uh, knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, downloaded what, what, what smattering of education I had at that time, Western education. And I had to make up words in Tibetan and things, but it was great fun. He's such a wonderful person. He really is. Well, one of the things I've enjoyed um, in this sort of COVID time was I know that, you know, anybody teaching has had to make an adjustment to being online instead of in person and, sort of watching His Holiness do his very first teachings on Zoom, you know, and it was just like, it it can feel so strange because it might feel like you're talking to nobody. And then they did a very smart thing. They put on his screen uh, your photo, apparently, and and other people. And so he, he would be teaching and then he'd say, there's Bob Thurman, you know, and he'd be so happy. Like oh, suddenly yeah. he was, it was connecting, you know, it was like I know, an old I friend know. and it was really yeah. sweet. I mean, really sweet. It's so sweet. Well, he, has, he has two big screens now and he has about 30, 40, 30, 40 people he can have up there. Yeah. And then that's when he then agreed to start doing a few Zoom teachings. He's done quite a few since then. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but uh, although not frequently, he doesn't, and he turned down all kinds of, you know, important things that uh, I wish he would do, but he doesn't, he won't do it. Mm. They, they are, they're keeping him very carefully. Well, he said, you know, he has to live for 24 more years, you know, according to his, his commitment for them. Because he, he doesn't have to live beyond when the Chinese, so the Chinese actually are prolonging his life by not speaking with him and not dialoguing with him and working out some way. In fact, they're doubling down to crush the culture. It's mm. ridiculous what mm. they're doing now. Like they, uh, somehow with the Uyghurs, right? That horrible stuff they're doing yeah, with the Uyghurs, yeah. the Communist Party. I shouldn't say the Chinese because it's the Communist Party. So many Chinese love uh, Buddha Dharma, you know, the million, yeah. hundreds of millions of them do. Yeah. But the communists are really, they, they feel so insecure for some reason, even with all the supposed miracles, wealth and everything. They still feel insecure. 
So they're determined to brainwash everyone. So terrible, really. Yeah, it's a really sorry thing, which actually brings me to the intriguing book title. Oh, yeah. That you used because. Uh, Wisdom all, is bliss. Wisdom is bliss, you know, in this yeah. world of sorrow and strife. Um, so, very big congratulations to you for the release. I know it came out on your birthday. Um, the full title is Wisdom is Bliss Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. <laughs> now, that's an optimistic tome. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's the only way to deal with it. In other words, Yes, one of the fun facts, you know, I was thinking about that we would get to this conversation. One of the fun facts is that all unenlightened life is going to be suffering. Mm-hmm. It's going to be stressful. And that's a, how can that be a fun fact? You know, I, I was thinking that. And I, I've been answering it in my own mind all the time. And, um, of course, my idea of the friendly fact is a translation of the noble truth, right? It's mm-hmm. a friendly fact. Because the noble is a person who is genuinely altruistic. It's the idea of Buddha's using the word noble. That's what he meant. You know, as someone who has a, a sense of empathy of the other, that they therefore have a feeling of noblesse oblige about them. So he was giving a little lesson to his caste system, Indian colleagues, about with that. And I think, noble, therefore, we don't understand about noble in, in the West, since we're supposedly all equal in our democracy. But we do understand friendly. Mm -hmm. and someone who cares for you and feels your feeling can be relied upon as truly altruistic, right? But someone Mm -hmm. who is like a narcissist, they might pretend to befriend you, but they're not going to really befriend you. So that was the idea. Then the idea of fun, well, I remember, for example, yourself, didn't you, weren't you really happy having had a really hard youth? Mm Mm-hmm. That it's, you finally found someone who said, "Well, it's normal that you suffer yeah. but until you're enlightened." Yeah, and even people can sometimes overhear that, where they they overthink it and think that means that it's inevitable to suffer. You know, mm-hmm. there's no escape from it, which would be, which is what I am focusing on in the book. And my title is like that: "Wisdom is Bliss," is because Nirvana, the third noble food, truth or friendly fun fact. Is super fun. (laughs) (laughs) Super fun fact. (laughs) Freedom from suffering, you know, and how to, and of course, in Mahayana, that means even still in the world. Yeah. It is nirvana when you, it's non dual, so it's in nirvana. And as as you know, I recently discovered in the large mindfulness sutra that the Buddha located the cessation of suffering or freedom from suffering in all of the agreeable things in the world. Mm. If you if you experience them without craving them more, mm-hmm. so what strangles them and makes them unfun is that you just you don't bother to enjoy them. You just because you're wanting more so much, you know, and you're comparing them to what you fantasize or whatever, you know. So they call it the suffer, and it doesn't last. So they call it the suffering of change. So anyway, that's the positive thing, and you know, as you know, also I'm very determined about the environment as a great grandpa now in my 80s. Mm-hmm. And I went to Al Gore and got trained and got all the slides about all the catastrophes, you know, and they, they renew them, you know, to the people in the group once you take his training. And I'm so Greta Thunberg out about it mm-hmm. because I have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And, um, and, but the point is, if we're just angry with the fossil fuel lunatics and the militarists flying all their high fossil fuel using $20 billion of gas they use a year at the Pentagon, 
20 billion bucks worth of gas and oil. Mm. And if we just get angry with them, then they'll use that as a reason to continue doing what they're doing and we'll never get to a new place. So the revolution that we need, that His Holiness has called for, that the Pope has called for, everyone knows, except some people like Joe Manchin apparently didn't get the newsflash. (laughs) But otherwise, everyone knows that we need really a revolution in our lifestyle to shift over to mm-hmm. the, you know, electric, uh, you know, clean energy, you know, and stop putting up carbon and also change the agriculture to regenerative agriculture, free range animal, no more uh, live feed, feed lots of things, you know, et cetera, et cetera, one after another. And, uh, and they're not, and we're not doing it. You know, the power people in power are not doing it. So, but if we're angry with them, that just makes them more stubbornly stuck there. If we are really happy, ourselves and we really will have the skill you know and we'll have the humor we'll be there is a hope you know we'll have the energy mm-hmm. you know anger mm-hmm. just wears you right out you know it's like the it's like the martial arts guy who loses the martial arts contest when, the guy or girl when they get really angry at their opponent and grasshopper throws them out the window you know, who stays cool <laughs> right right so i'm i'm curious you know um one could say the unenlightened life is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A in Pali, yes, Pali language. Yes. Uh, is suffering like your go-to translation for dukkha? Do you use other words? No, no, suffering is fine. I mean, you can use stress or suffering or, you know, pain. You can even use pain. Dukkha can simply mean pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's true. And I always say, I always compare it to Socrates who said the unexamined life, which he, which was his way of meaning mm-hmm. it, was not worth living. And Buddha never said that. He just says it'll be frustrating. It'll be you will suffer. And uh, and he only said it when he discovered the the one of the four truths that is the real reality, as he put it in his own self commentaries. The real reality is the freedom from suffering. That was his great discovery. And then once you know that's possible for people. Well, if you keep behaving like what you are doing now, you're going to just keep suffering. In, in other words, it's like secondary to that third one. That's the prognosis, in other words. Mm-hmm. So I'm just harping on the prognosis and wisdom is bliss, you know. And even I have, even there is a theory from Tantra, from the esoteric level of Mahayana, that the thing that you know nirvana with, the cognition that you know nirvana with, is bliss, which mm-hmm. is a very strange statement to make in the sense that it means that somehow that kind of knowing, which they sometimes also say is knowing by not knowing, mm-hmm. like, you know, the not knowing, Joe, Joe, Joe Goldstein would like that, you know, yeah. not knowing, right? Well, they say knowing by not knowing, but what that means is knowing by experience, by not knowing, by thinking it fits in your concept. Mm-hmm. Right? By not knowing in that dualistic way, then you know where you become one with what you know. So that's knowing by not knowing. But, but when you become one with it, how do you become one with it? You melt into it. When you melt, what is melting? Blissful. Mm. Right? If you're able to let go, it's blissful. So then uh, if you don't fight it. So, so that's wisdom is bliss. You know, that's, a, that's a re- referring to that. You know. So can we I go know. over the four fun and friendly facts uh, in <laughs> sequence? Sure. Sure. So the one about uh, suffering is really rigorously 
investigating so that you don't look for any palliative partial solutions to the stress levels that we live in. And you sort of face the, the second, that's the first. And so the first fun fact says acknowledge, acknowledge, in a way it doesn't take a big realization, it really acknowledge the fact that whatever you do as a separated being, living in a, in a reality that is your own simulation to some extent, because you, you are imagining it fitting with your ideas of it, uh, and of course, into interaction with others in a society and a culture and a language and the whole thing. But anyway, we're doing that. And uh, anything that you do in that state where you are different from the whole universe will ultimately prove unsatisfactory because temporarily you'll have pleasures, but you'll be mad they don't last. Temporarily you'll feel healthy and well, but then you'll die and get sick, etc. You know, and they list them all. And that's in order to make you realize that there's some way you really can find a way of being happy and because you it's your right to be happy and that's very revolutionary i'll make a lot of point in the book about uh, how all with eastern cultures not only western like the vedic culture in buddhist time just as much and definitely the chinese culture uh they they tell you you should you should suffer and you should suffer for the state and you should suffer for the collective and the king, maybe they have, they have a happy time now and then they have a feast and whatever. But you're supposed to work for that king, fight for the king, work for the, and then the high priest will tell you that God wants you to do it. He's like a cosmic king. And so all the cultures are basically make us afraid of reality and feel that, that it's normal and we should be resigned to suffering in life. Whereas Buddha said, no way, you can be really happy. You can be blissful if you know what it is and what you are. You can have eternal life, in fact, actually. He says, Amitayas, Buddha, one of the name of Buddha is Amitayas, eternal life. And um, he said, no more death for me when he, after he attained enlightenment, you know, it's like a deathless elixir is the reality I have discovered in some one version. Of course, nobody knows exactly what he did say. And the Zen people say he never said anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. He said... One guy, Zen guy, I love it, he said, the Buddha never said anything from the moment of enlightenment until he <laughs> left his body in Paranirvana. He said, but then he said, then in the next breath, he said, it was such a garrulous non-speaking filled the dragon king's cave with scriptures. <laughs> wow, that's so great. That is cool, you know, like everybody heard something, in other words, that he, he presented to them to help them, you know. So, okay, first one is that. Then, then the second one is cause, is that sense of, I'm the absolute other than the universe, which is an absolutely itself other than me and puts you in a losing situation. The universe will get you sooner or later. And, uh, and then the third one, however, is the prognosis. So when you understand that, then, you're, then the, that puts you on the path to try to figure out, is that really the situation that, that you think it is? You versus everything else. And is that really it, right? So that, that since you acknowledge that you're suffering, you then try to understand the cause of that suffering. And then he, the prognosis, but I love Buddha because he said, well, I can't, nothing I tell you will liberate you, but you know, you have to yourself liberate yourself. But I can sort of introduce you to methods with which you can find your own reality where you are free of suffering which is actually your real nature, you know, your deep inner nature you can find. And I encourage you, because I was a spoiled brat prince, 
And I actually got cool and I figured out what was real and I'm a happy camper, he said. But that doesn't help if you just adopt that as a dogma because the ultimate reality is indescribable. It's beyond expression. It doesn't fit in our concepts, but you can experience it if you practice this and meditate and learn and so on and so on. So that's, that's the second truth. Then the third one is the prognosis. The actual reality of the universe is freedom from suffering. And that one you can, as a human, you're well positioned to discover that. You have the brain, you have the heart to do it if you focus on it. So that's what you should do with the human life if you really knew the reality of it. That should be your motivation. So that's the third one. It's prognosis. You imagine it, he says. Realize it. And then the fourth one, okay, here's your curriculum. Eightfold path, you know. And none of them in themselves are enlightenment or nirvana, but they are the methods. And also they don't cause enlightenment or nirvana because nirvana is the uncaused. It's always actually been there. But, but this is how you change yourself to be able to understand it. You open yourself to it. And that's the fourth one. That's the fourth friendly fun fact. And it's really fun to do it, mm -hmm. actually, because it's more fun to be open to life than, than to be closed and be fighting it off all the time because you can't fight it off. You know, that's the, that's the problem because you are not an absolute being. Nobody is absolute. You're only relative, you know. And so that's, those are the friendly fun facts. And as someone actually like an authority, you know, like equivalent of an authority in a culture telling you, well, I'm not, I just can't do it for you. So I'm not making a prophecy and creating a religion for you. Actually, he did, never said that. He was creating a religion. He said, I am, um, I myself have freed myself and I'm happy and I know you can do it and I've got a bunch of methods for you if you use them where you can do it. And those methods are ethical, they're meditational, and they are intellectual and scientific. But, you know, using, developing your ethics, your concentration and your wisdom, you know. The higher educations in the, you know, we, I always say we call them trainings mm -hmm. because of our Western arrogance that we think we're highly educated by our own Harvards and whatever it is. And actually we're, we're stupid because we're wrecking the planet. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. fact, and uh, we do have more to learn, you know, but we didn't want to think that people who study, or they've been to graduate school even and they study Buddhism. And they are learning how to live better and how to feel better and whatever, meditating and learning. Uh, but they don't want to think they're learning. They just think they're retraining themselves mm -hmm. or something because they already knew everything because they got the PhD or something. Like I tease my Buddhist studies friends and I say, you guys are studying, I don't know what you're studying. You're studying Buddhists or what? <laughs> and you're certainly not studying Buddha because you have a preconceived idea. There's no such thing as higher consciousness. And you actually know Buddha was not enlightened because he's pre-modern. In a backward society, as far as you're concerned, he was living, A, and B, he didn't have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and you do, and you think you're enlightened, and he's just some pre-modern guy, you know, and other people are religious, superstitious people thinking he was, quote, unquote, enlightened and holy or something. And meanwhile, they are uh, they're just like another any other religion or something like that, you know. And uh, so you don't want to, you don't you don't accept Buddha as knowledge, you know, as having wisdom means mm -hmm. knowing the nature of reality. It doesn't mean signing up for God or something. It doesn't mean that. So anyway, 
So that's that's a four friendly fun facts. That's that's a, that's so now no one has to get the book. Like, that's, that's <laughs> no, the I think everyone should get the book. But actually, yeah, one of the things one of the things, Cheryl, now I wanted to say is that I had a friend years and years ago, who shall be unnamed, but he passed away. But he told me that Nirvana would be so boring. He absolutely was uninterested, <laughs> and he was a happy sort of psychedelic type of guy and an artist. And he he said, "Who needs that?" He said. That's it. Once it, once you, once everything is total bliss, it's boring. He said, who wants that? I don't want that. What you like is to sort of be excruciating and, you know, do something and then like slip away and let go of the excruciating, you know. So it's the transition that's the bliss, bliss, he said. So in a way, that's a good argument. And I would, and I was short of being, having a, a view of that I would have that I articulated in this book. And uh, short of really following the Avatamsaka Sutra or following some of the more visionary types of, of Mahayana and, and Theravada teaching, you know, and uh, about how it's right to be happy and it's, it's possible to be happy. So anyway, I, I was always deferring that, you know, and then finally I had this idea. I think I was helped by Mark Epstein's title, subtitle in his latest book. I helped that. It helped me. Remember his subtitle, his book was uh, Advice Not Given. And then the subtitle yeah. was How to Get Over Yourself. Uh -huh. Remember that? Yeah. So, so yeah. then I think what I realized was that when you get over yourself is when you get boring with yourself mm -hmm. because you're contented, you know, and then where is the joy? Where, where's the bliss? So my friend's mm -hmm. argument resonating 20, 30, 40 years later. And then I realized, of course, the joy then is you automatically interact with others in a way where you cheer them up. Mm -hmm. and, the, and, the more, and you have greater amounts of joy and fun because you're in a position uh, through compassion and, and, uh, and, and joy, sharing happiness. Because compassion means sharing happiness. That means you have to have happiness yourself somewhat, at least to share it. And you can't really do it by saying, oh, I'd like to, but I'm more miserable than you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't really help. And so, so the thing is, it's, you have, once you're over yourself, you have the much greater fun of caring about others and seeing that affect them in a positive way. You know, because it does cheer them up when you're cheering, yeah. as you know, automatically. And the only way we're going to get, you know, and so I'm putting this out in the midst of, I met a lady at a dinner, an elderly, wonderful lady, uh, who was, uh, I think, uh, one year older than me, 81. And um, just the other day, and she said, well, how can you say anything? I guess, okay, you know, it's good because the world is in tatters, she said. And I said, well, yes. But the point is, it doesn't add to the tatters in a positive way for us to get completely freaked out because it's in tatters. In fact, we have to find some place of joy yeah. that we can bring to the tatters to start stitching it into a crazy quilt. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. You know, cheered her up. So, so, this so anyway, that's message. my point. That's like, my point. I like the crazy quilt. So you and I had a chance to teach together a few weeks ago. And uh, one of the things that you brought up was actually something that I, uh, since I'm writing a new book also, I'm, I'm not oh, good. Yes, I'm, I'm waiting for it. I'm like in process. But um, one of the things uh, I was considering was, well, the, the overarching theme of the book is sort of like expansion and contraction. Those states like right, fixation right. and fear and jealousy that right. really have us contract and then 
right. uh, things like loving kindness and compassion, which open us. But right. something I was going to write about that you actually brought up, and I, I wanted to ask you about that, which was sure, sure. The, the word dharma um, in oh, ancient yeah. India and that idea of duty and the caste system and how you were right. born predetermining a lot of your life and right. uh, compared to the way we might use the word dharma as that which actually opens you and frees you. Exactly, and, exactly. You know, so that was really fascinating to me when you brought so, that up. So, well, there's a great, yeah. So, well, this you might be helped by Vasubandhu, uh, sometimes known as the second Buddha Vasubandhu, you know, a great uh, Mahayana writer who was originally from, uh, you know, Rao was in the Theravada school, so he was a great Theravadist as well, built also many monasteries. But anyway, he has a wonderful book, on the, on the, you know, sort of a scholarly book about an, interpreting uh, sutras and things called Vyakya Yukti, the, um, you know, um, reasoning behind the teaching, you know, exp mm -hmm. uh, exposition, exposition reasoning. And in that he gives 11 meanings of Dharma. Mm. And it rains, it rains, they range all the way from quality or even a, a substance, quality or substance, to all the way to nirvana. And reality, and the, uh, reality with a capital R, you know. So these, in these eleven meanings that he analyzes in the fifth century of the Common Era, in the Indian literature, and and this, if you pair that with, uh, I, I put, was put that with Talcott Parsons, uh, famous sociologist uh, who was a teacher of mine at Harvard many years ago in the sixties, early sixties. He he had uh, two kinds of concepts. He called pattern maintaining concept and pattern transcending concepts. Mm. And so if you take that and you put the bottom five of those meanings into pattern maintaining, that's where you get dharma as duty, dharma as religion, dharma as law. And uh, or the main, you know, like when, when Krishna tells Arjuna, you have to fight because it's your dharma as a warrior uh, that you fight. And that means duty. And your caste duty, and so that's a pattern maintaining thing, like a law. And actually, the lower meanings below that are even the word uh, dharma as a as a as a thing, as a substance means a substance that has a particular characteristic that holds its characteristics, sort of like a realist idea about phenomena. You know, in Indian philosophy, not just Buddhist, in Indian philosophy in general, dharma can have that meaning, and and uh, dharma, dharmin, you know. And uh, it can mean the quality that is, makes a dharma a dharma, you know, and the, the, the Theravada, the Abhidharma thing is like that. So then, but then the Buddha, and now, and then you add this Patrick Olivelle, great uh, translator of Vedic literature and the Brahmanas and Upanishads, this sort of thing. He was amazed when he did a statistical analysis with some sort of database of the, that old ancient Vedic literature. And he said that he found only 17 uses of the word dharma. So it didn't have the pattern transcending meanings before the time of Buddha. No, you know, he's not saying Buddha added them, but I think he was the main leader of that movement at the mid-first millennium BCE that did add these things. But anyway, he added to it all the pattern transcending meanings, which are teaching, path, practice, virtue, um, and, and finally uh, nirvana and so forth. And his, and his real definition was, Dharma, from the verb, verb dinner to hold, is the reality that holds you in freedom from suffering. That's what it means, in other words. 
So that so your dharma is is your nirvana, brother. Your inherent nirvana, almost you could say, mm-hmm. as a human being, or as any kind of sensitive being, actually, you know, animal as well. But human is so close because of of our open, relative openness compared to other biological life forms, and um, and also not too open in some palliative way, like the gods. You know, they have. I think mm-hmm. I finally got you know this. You know, in our meditation of suffering, acknowledging suffering. The hardest thing to do of the first friendly fun fact is to see that the happiness of the gods is suffering. That's the suffering of change. Mm-hmm. And I think I finally nailed that a little bit, you know, uh, in the sense of, uh, you know, I think that the formless realm gods in particular, they become, they think they have no body and they feel very isolated and they think that's the final destination, you know, in their sort of nirvikalpa samadhi type of ideas. And, um, you know, they're in the realm of infinite space, infinite this, infinite mm-hmm. that, you know. And, uh, but then, therefore, they lose their, their critical mind and they lose all conceptuality and they become very dull in mind. So they would naturally, when they would leave that, the causes of their yoga that put, made them able to attain that state, which is a very refined, concentrated state, they will fall to the animal kingdom. Where you where, where you lower that a human, where you're more you know you just you don't you can't critically be reflective about what you're doing. You just run after the food, you know. You run mm-hmm. after whatever it is, you know, because you can't you don't have the equipment to look back into yourself because they've been like that and isolated, and it's a real horror to them who are become completely helpless almost because they can't maneuver within differentiation of, of, of phenomena and. Uh, of course, the titans, they fall to the hells by being violent and, and fighting, you know, the asuras. And then as the form realm gods, I have a hard time getting rid of them. Mm-hmm. The desire realm gods, they definitely go to the preta realm because they get so indulged in desire, they'll fall in the preta realm if they die in that, that, that when, they, when they die in that, from those six desire realms. Form realm gods are pretty cool, actually. Huh. The four dhyanas, love, joy, compassion, mm-hmm. joy, and equanimity. They're very close to enlightened, I'm afraid. So I haven't found their destination, except maybe they end up in a bad uh, neighborhood. <laughs> and, and they, when they decide to come back to being more sensitive as a human in order, to, in order to somehow find the bliss of the whole thing rather than just be happy by themselves. There are, there are 17 layers of heaven in the four immeasurables. You know? So I haven't figured them out. But So I'm a little short of the full understanding of it. But... But I'm, I got a little bit, I really saw it somehow in working with the Book of the Dead, how the God realms lead you lower below the human form and how, why the human one is so valuable. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and it's such an opportunity for us to really realize things. So please, if you, if you lose, uh, you know, I think you can find that. I, I will send you maybe some passages from something if you want oh, to use love that. things yeah. for your book on Dharma. And so it's really opposite. It's an opposite meaning. And as he said, the, only, the 17 uses in the early one that Olivelle mentions are all connected with the, what's the ritual called the Raja Suya, which is the coronation of the king because the kings were the only ones allowed to be happy or something like mm-hmm. that. They were allowed, they, they, their dharma was to be, uh, hopefully be so powerful as kings that they didn't have to have wars, that people just naturally followed their, followed their rules and regulate, you no, know, their peaceful rules and they maintain peace, you know, so they had a nice idea of kingship, actually, in the Vedas thing, a, a little bit. They, did, they, they didn't want it. And they were very powerful. And, they, you know, the Persians never conquered India, and Alexander the Great couldn't conquer them either. 
until after Buddha made them more peaceful and vulnerable. Buddha and the Bhakti, Bhakti people and the Hindu yogis and all of the, all of the, the and the, the Shramanas in general. You know, I loved Ralal Mani Joshi's theory about Hinduism really being the meeting of Shramanas and Brahmanas, you know. Mm. Not just the Vedic thing like the current Indians think, but the Shramanas had a huge input into Hinduism. Ahim, you know, Ahimsa and all of those things come from the Shramanas, you know. I, of whom Buddha was the, sort of the most notable, but they all the all the other ones worked harder. The Mahavira was very strong in, in his effort, you know. So they're all great too, you know. And all the and, and all, you know, there's a wonderful graduate student now. Who I'm so happy about my last graduate student. He's not even my main one. I'm a, I'm only a secondary reader in his uh, dissertation. He's studying the Mahayana Sutras at the same time as the Vaishnava Vishnu Purana and the Shiva Puranas, and showing how this was a time in India, four or 500 years after Buddha's time, when new scriptures were replacing the Vedas. <laughs> Not just the Upanishads that are kind of saying, well, Vedas are okay on their level, but we're all king moksha. But they're somehow still in the same vein with the Vedas. They're like, I can't get the anti balancing the Vedas. But these are whole new divine beings. And then Vishnu and Shiva arise and completely eclipse the Vedic uh, deities, except for Brahma. But the other ones, you know, Mitra, Varuna, Yama, they all sort of, they become background deities to these new. And that's same time as Mahayana Sutras, same time as Bhakti and Bodhisattva cult. And for the first time in Western academic study, he's looking at these movements that constitute real Hinduism culminating in the Bhagavad Gita. And, and Mahayana as parallel mo movements in the same eras and the same times of social change in early, uh, early uh, common era, early AD or common era centuries. And I just think it's so wonderful he's, what he's doing. I'm, I'm so thrilled. Because otherwise people on the Hindu side, they think they don't need to study Buddhism in India because it disappeared, right? Mm -hmm. And then on the Buddhist side, they're using sources in Tibet or China or Sri Lanka, and they don't think they need to study the other side in India. So th these, these things have not been brought together until, until this next generation. I failed to really get it done in my life. Mm. So I want to thank you for, for that. And I look forward to getting the, the links. I also want to talk to you about love and compassion, about love, about love and compassion oh, and gratitude. Yes. And, um, well, that's great. We did know, our book, Love Your Enemy. We did. We did, actually. <laughs> but, you know, we should have stuck with the whole title in that, from that movie. We I, agree. Have subtitle. I agree. Because it will drive them crazy. <laughs> I agree. That's really fun. But we were, I, I, I chickened out, I confess. I take, full, I take responsibility. I chickened out. You did. Because <laughs> some Christian person looked too nervous, and I thought, oh, it's pushing them too hard. But anyway, yeah, so... Uh, so, uh, yes, what about so, love? No, maybe the most contracting things we feel are grasping, hatred, delusion, fear. Yeah. And the most expansive are, uh, you know, wisdom and connection and compassion and gratitude and love. And um, I'm interested in, in those uh, expansive states because they're both yeah. kind of like the means in the end. They're the path and they're also the expression. That's right. Of a free mind. Sure. Well, that's bliss too, you know. Uh -huh. uh, bliss is the secret, you know. 
but because it's illegal in, or it's, you know, in, in authoritarian societies, which all of them have been the last 5,000 mm -hmm. years of patriarchy of planet wide. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the ones we know from any literature anyway. And, uh, and so bliss is the key, right? Because wisdom, that's why I, wisdom is bliss, right? I call it that. But, but the point about the bliss is that's the, that's the experience of opening. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's felt to be kind of dangerous because then you become open, you become vulnerable, you know. But when you're in love, then suddenly you feel a kind of bliss. And then you associate it with the object of love, of course. And then you want that being to be blissful, to want to share that bliss with that being. And, uh, and then, but you're very vulnerable. Then if you're rejected and it's all horrible, and then other people, and then you'll be kind of uh, careless or something, we associate it with that, you know. We associate it in our, in our Protestant ethic culture. Uh, we associate if you get too happy, you'll get something bad will happen. I totally have that ingrained in me. Uh, and I, you know, at, at 80 years old, I can see it in the pattern in me that when you're feeling really good, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, as they say, something bad to happen. Mm. But this is the mistake. So, so, you know, the secret of compassion is that the, that you, 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 is empathy that you can feel the feeling of the other and then, but without losing your own bliss or your own relative lack of that feel, that, that suffering that they have. So being open to them while feel, having a bliss that sees that they could have a bliss. So then it becomes an energy that goes to them. It's why Mathieu always, Mathieu always says, you know, the guy who they put in the machine mm -hmm. and they put the stuff on his brain and put him in the fMRI machine, and then they, when he meditates on compassion, they see this kind of nice resolution in the left side of his brain. But, but why? Because he is, he's, uh, he said, and that's not the empathy part. Empathy is just where you feel their suffering. Mm -hmm. But then build, but, but on the other hand, that is the fuel, on the other hand, that then makes your own uh, inner bliss rise to meet that suffering. And that's then the energy of compassion. So it's actually, bliss is actually the elixir that flows between the, the truly compassionate one. There, you can, there can be someone who's sympathetic, but they don't have access to their own inner feeling of bliss. And therefore they just say, oh, you're suffering. Oh, oh I'm so sorry for you, that's terrible. But since I'm suffering so much for myself, there's not much I can do for you. And that's not real compassion. That's what they call anunayadrishti. They call it in Sanskrit, the the compassion, not great compassion, but the compassion that has a theory of sympathy, do you know, mm -hmm. anunaya, it has a theory of sympathy, a view of sympathy. So it's seeing the other as really separate from yourself because you're not going to feel their suffering and you're just going to, because you're focused on your own. So therefore you can't really, really reach out to them. So it's a combination of the empathy that then do you, do you find your inner well of bliss that you have? I mean, you're the best master of that. Mm -hmm. You are the one in your previous book, Real Love, who found it in other people simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And you remember I always jokingly say, you're the one who articulated as the village. You know, Hillary mm -hmm. just said, it takes a village to do something. You know, we all have to work together, Right. But you actually articulated the village in the sense that you interviewed all these people who were on the front line here and there and the other. And you were on the front line by knowing them and being connected to them and 
fueling and encouraging their altruism and the fact that that's what makes the you know you know those silly psychologists who go around shouting about how there's no such thing as altruism because there's some self selfish fee- feedback or input output from being altruistic so you feel better when you're altruistic in other words if people do but that's not an obstacle that's good that generates stronger altruism mm-hmm. <laughs> right because that's what as this whole says if you want to when you you know if you want to be happy effectively and achieve that selfish aim be compassionate right. because it is being being uh, feeling the feeling of the other and realizing how much more suffering there is than whatever you're suffering that then gives you the find you find relief from yours because there's so much more and then you want to do something about them with that relief which is actually a kind of bliss you know relief is sort of bliss right so so that's the thing. So that's why I say in the first part of that book, as you saw, Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I purposely make it, want to make it sound like orgasm. Because orgasm, of course, is when male or female or non-binary, they get into letting go, their identity, melting. And, uh, and, but it, it's very, very, not very strong in people who are very frightened. Because they, and uh, you know what Wilhelm Reich says, they have the emotional plague. They've been beaten as a child or some way harmed. And they, and they have shut down or they've been in the military and been beaten. So they've shut down their inner flow, their inner streaming of the natural human, you know, well of sensitivity. And the well of inner, inner bliss that humans have, you know, that, that everybody has. That's how life goes on, right? The life energy. Actually, thank you. You explained something that um, I've been saying, as it's true, that uh, if there's a, a phrase of the Buddhas that I'm intending to repeat to myself in these days, it's um, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred yeah. will only cease by love. Mm. This is an eternal law. And there's so many times when it feels like that's a chore. You know, but, <laughs> I sure does. But you've also explained it in a way where it's not a chore because you're reaching something within yourself that actually exists that That's is capable. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, yes. Of course. Well, listen, you're the teacher of love. No, thank you. Yeah, I'm just a, I'm just sneaking off into the bliss pond at 80 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but no, really, I'm serious. You know, I hope that you follow that pattern. Yeah, and uh, and you you know it's like you know there's someone called Chenoweth at Harvard who took up Gene Sharp's work. Remember Gene mm-hmm. for nonviolence being yeah. the most powerful social transforming thing, and she took it up. In, she's at Kennedy, I think, school or something at Harvard, sociology maybe. But she took it up. He was not really proper. He was just research connected fellow at Harvard. He wasn't on the faculty. But she took it up to disprove it because she thought that's a whole lot of hokum, you know, like, you know, the, you know, the, the, the soldier's rule, you know, the army rule. Mm-hmm. You know, she was, she, and, and yet she really studied it and then looked further and then she became completely convinced. And she met some black scholar in Chicago who was a big nonviolence theorist like Jean, whose name I'm not remembering. And he pushed her over the edge, and she's really as apparently. I I I have the ebooks of them, and I started to read them, but you know I'm I'm as usual as I like to say I'm much too busy ever to get anything done, <laughs> 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 doing too many things. 
but uh, she's really great. And you, you're, you know, you, the way you, uh, you sort of articulated like the spiritual core force energy of a village of people on the front line with the people's misery and helping them rise above it and the, and the injustice and the pain, the suffering and the blah, 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 all of that. And it's so wonderful the way you did that in that book. Thank you. That's actually real change. Part of my real train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, if the next one, whatever you do, if you go further with all mm. that, all of them, and of course, select them as you will, naturally your thing and whatever you want to do. But that, that would be so good. I will. I, I, I'm, I can't wait to see it. You know, I really can't. You know, and that's what you know. Finally, people forced me. I was really shying away from reading this Avatamsaka Sutra because it's so huge. You know, mm -hmm. the Vimalakirti, which I did twelve sessions on, mm -hmm. uh, which are in the can somewhere on some teachable platform from Menla or something, mm -hmm. or from Tibet House. And uh, and I and then and Vimalakirti is called also the, it has the same subtitle called the Inconceivable Liberation Sutra, and then but it, but Vimalakirti himself says this is just a tiny drop of the ocean of the Inconceivable Liberation, which is the flower ornament, you know, the Buddha flower ornament, Buddha garland sutra, that is Buddha Avatamsaka sutra, Indian one, and it is so amazing. But I was hesitating doing it because I it would just be. It's just so huge, mm -hmm. you know. Talk about expansive. It's really, uh, it's just nothing but the expansion of the, that Samantabhadra, you know, Bodhisattva, yeah. the Chinese paint. The Chinese paint him always as on an elephant. And I'm sure that's because the Indians painted, you know, India is so sad because of the invasions in India in the second millennium. There's not a single cloth tanka from Buddhist India, from mm. 1500 years, you know, or, you know, ever since Ashoka's time, they were using uh, symbolic painting. And it, there are stories of paintings made of Buddha, actually, which I believe, you know, Westerners don't, but, they, you know, they, because the aniconic nature of the Vedic thing. But um, anyway, there, there must have been zilly, you know, look at all those posters you see in the bazaar in India, of Vishnu and Shiva and, and Krishna, you know what I mean, those colorful posters. There must have been zillions of tankas, you know, and all we have of the flavor of it is like the Janta caves, mm -hmm. a little tiny bit of the actual color painting that must have been just wild in India in the old days and nothing left. And so only the Tibetan painting gives us a hint about it. And some later Hindu painting also gives us a hint about it. But uh, then immediately it's like Rajput painting. It's a painting of kings, you know, and, uh, and women and things like that, right? You don't have uh, you don't have deities that much, you know. But you have a lot of paintings of Krishna and Shiva. That you do, and um, and we, so we, but we and the Tibetans have a lot of paintings of all the bodhisattvas. So I'm sure there was Samantabhadra paintings on elephants in India. I have no doubt. But that Samantabhadra concept, you know, the totally good bodhisattva mm. who's in every atom of the of every world and who is here and everywhere, and it's, it's, it's so expensive. <laughs> and then in every atom of every world, there's other universes. And going in the micro direction, you never get to nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. There's more worlds and universes inside every subatomic particle infinitely. And then every subatomic particle of that universe in the subatomic particle, there's also other new universes. So even the macro expands and even you expand in the micro, you know, imagine, imaginatively, you know. Wow. And, uh, and so I was resisting doing it. Then Tom died. Yeah, Tom Cleary. So then I feel it's a duty 
So I'm doing that. Wow, now, bravo. I can't wait. Not, I don't know when I'll ever write another one of those books, but I will. <laughs> I might someday, but I don't know. His Holiness, oh, he wrote me, by the way, a sweetest note on my birthday. Oh. He really did. It was so sweet, but, but we don't think we should publicize it. But I like to sit mention the one paragraph where he talks about himself. Mm -hmm. And it was very short. And he said, you know, congratulations, blah, blah, you're doing great stuff. I know it's fun. We've known each other after all for nearly six decades. He said, yeah. he got the number right, 1964. That makes 57 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, um, but about himself, he says this, he says, I too am in good health and full of joy. Mm. And at 86, the reason I can do so is because of altruism mm. in serving others. And I am confident that if I continue to cultivate altruism and continue to serve others, I can maintain this good health and joy forward sort of thing. And so that's a lot. And he's saying that to encourage me as a mere 80-year-old with him six years my senior, <laughs> not to sort of start feeling, oh, oh, you know, when I walk into a room and forget why I went into the room <laughs> and have to have to think a little bit, oh, yes, right, I need my car keys or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm at that, that happens. And then he's encouraging me not to be thinking, oh, well, of course, I'm 80. Now I'm going to start losing my mind. <laughs> Right. <laughs> in some way, I already lost it. And, and of course, I'll be more fuzzy, I'm sure, in certain, especially about stress, I think, when I get too busy or too rough. Mm -hmm. So, Bob, uh, you could lead us all in a meditation. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right. I, I was sort of doing that by mentioning the Samantha Bhadra. Yeah. Because I thought I would read, I ran into some verse here that I thought I would read. Great. Uh, uh, from it, just and, and as a meditation. Because you know, by the way, our Dharma people in your following who love the Dharma, they they might know that the Vinaya of the of the three baskets of the Theravada teachings and ever Mahayana ever teaching, the the Vinaya basket is the ethics one mm -hmm. that corresponds to higher education in ethics. The wisdom, the Abhidharma is the basket of text that fit with the wisdom one sort of science of the nature of reality. But sutra, which are supposedly direct statement by Buddha or authorized by Buddha, by great bodhisattvas and so on, that's the one that fits with the meditation higher education, mm -hmm. you know, samadhi higher education. So reading a sutra is like a kind of samadhi. Mm -hmm. it's, it's adopting a narrative that is a guided meditation, basically. So that's, that's the meditation I will do, reading a few verses spoke by by uh, universally good, when he is invited to show the world. And he says the exceedingly profound, he, he first gives it in a paragraph about the inconceivability of everything. And um, he says, um, well, that's too long, maybe that whole thing, that, when he does it in prose. So I will do it in the 10 verses that he gives. So he's talking basically about the inconceivability of the power of goodness in the world, which is he is the sort of bodhisattvosis, <laughs> the bodhisattvosis of samantabhadra, universal goodness, trying to help people feel that reality itself is the goodness, 
you know, nirvana is the reality. Mm -hmm. no, sorry, sorry, he says here, the exceedingly profound ocean of virtue. And so now please go into meditative mode, everyone, and let this flow through you, you know, from Samantabhadra. The exceedingly profound ocean of virtues of wisdom appears in innumerable lands throughout the ten directions. Its light shining everywhere, turning the wheel of the Dharma in accord with what the various sentient beings need to see. The ocean of lands of the ten directions is inconceivable. Buddha has purified them all over immeasurable aeons. In order to edify beings and cause them to mature, he appears in all fields. And of course, this doesn't just mean on the planet Earth. This means many, many humanoid planets, zillions of them that are everywhere in the universe, in the, in the Avatamsaka vision. The Buddha's realm is most profound, inconceivable. He shows it to all beings, letting them enter. But their minds are attached to the petty and are attached to existent things, so they cannot understand what the Buddha has realized. If any have pure faith, on the other hand, and unshakable minds, and are always able to associate with good teachers, all the Buddhas will give their power so they can enter enlightened knowledge. Beyond flattery and deception, hearts pure, always gladly kind and compassionate, of joyful natures, determination broad and great, faith profound, such people hearing this teaching are glad. Dwelling on the ground of universally good vows, cultivating the pure ways of enlightening beings, regarding the cosmos-like space, these people can know the Buddha's fear. Such enlightening beings gain true benefit seeing the Buddha's mystical powers. None who practice other paths can know, only those of universally good practice can understand. Sentient beings are infinite, yet Buddha guards them all in his thoughts, teaching the truth, reaching all the power of Virochana's realm. That's the Buddha sort of associated with the flower bank world, which is our universe. All the lands are in my body, and so are the Buddhas living there. Watch my pores, and I will show you the Buddha's realm. The practice and vows of universally good are boundless. I have already fully cultivated them. The vast body of the realm of the universal I is the Buddha's sphere. Listen clearly. So that's, that's a meditation of Samantabhadra, the totally good being. These are praises of him by a huge host of bodhisattvas who come from other galaxies and other worlds to celebrate him being attending upon Shakyamuni Buddha at the time of his enlightenment. Born from the teachings of the enlightened, also originating from the willpower of the Buddha, the womb of space, the equality of real thusness, you have purified this body of reality. You, Samantabhadra, have purified this body of reality. In the congregations of all Buddha fields, you, universally good Samantabhadra, is omnipresent there. The light of the oceans of universal virtue and wisdom equally illumine everywhere, so all are visible. 
the immensely vast oceans of virtues of universally good Samantabhadra goes everywhere to approach the enlightened. To the lands within all atoms, he can travel and clearly appear there. O child of Buddha, we always see you associating with all the enlightened ones, abiding in the real state of concentration for aeons numerous as atoms in all worlds. The child of Buddha with an all-pervading body can go to the lands in all directions, liberating all the oceans of living beings, entering into all the parts of the cosmos, entering into all particles of the cosmos. The body is endless and undifferentiated, omnipresent as space. It expounds the great teaching of the realization of thusness. The light of all virtue, immense light clouds, power surpassing, traveling to all oceans of living beings, expounding the incomparable way practiced by all Buddhas, cultivating and learning the supreme practice of universal goodness, Samantabhadra, in order to liberate sentient beings for oceans of aeons, expounding all truths like a great cloud. The voice is tremendous. None do not hear. How can the how can the world be established? How do the Buddhas appear? And what is the reality of beings? Please explain truthfully the Dharma truth as it is. So that's the Samantabhadra and dedicate the merit. And you, Sharon, are my Samantabhadra for oh, sure. You are. are so beautiful. Well, I am filled with bliss from your meditation and from being with you, which is really... Fantastic. Thank you so much and, for, and for thank you me. so much, Sharon. Vice versa, one hundred percent. Love your enemy. We did it. We did it. <laughs> and we who knew it. who knew it would be such a relevant book all these years <laughs> it later? Is. It um, is. Thank you everybody for joining us. And to learn more about Bob's work, visit www.bobthurman, B O B T H U R M A N dot com. And get yourself a copy of his new book, Wisdom is Bliss, in hardcover and ebook formats wherever books are sold. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.